Hello and welcome into the Will and Rob Show. My name is Will Stockdale. I'm a ministry associate with Ministry of State here with my good friend, Robert, Rob, Bert, Hassler. There's so many names now. There are so many names. They just, every time I see you, they proliferate. And they, you're even called husband and dad. That's true. That's true. So, you know, really just pick your pick of what you want. Uh, we're really excited to be with you here today. We're going to continue with our format of, of just uh, talking about something that's been on Rob's mind and heart, and then on my mind and heart, and then come together at the end and talk about something that uh, kind of together. So what I want to first start out is ask you, just Robert, how have you been and uh, what's been on your mind this past week? Yeah, things have been good. Um, I am in that that fun period of the semester that's that... Summer school. Summer school, yes, where guys your big paper that's due and then you're also doing a bunch of reading and there's classes and lectures and so I've just been fully in school mode for the last 10 days or so um, it's been tough to really find the time to keep track of the news uh, like my wife today asked me what's going on in Portland and I said I don't know what is going on in Portland I was uh, I had just completely missed out on what was going on there and and was just not aware of anything like that um so yeah, it's been one of those those periods. Um, but I think that uh, one cool thing with seminary is uh, uh, no matter what you're studying, uh, it's always you, you'll or you'll always find things to apply it to in real mm-hmm. life. And so that's kind of how I've seen class going for the last couple of days or so. What class are you taking? So I'm taking a class that's called uh, Christian call uh, Christian Calling Information. Okay. Um, and so it's really about who or who are we as image bearers and like what all the facets of that are. Uh, so like, for example, I'm writing a paper right now that's, that had me ask, this was the most interesting essay question I've ever had to answer for anything. Ask me, how do I image God as a gardener? Like specifically how I engage with God's creation. Um, Are you a gardener? I'm not a gardener. So that I had to write in my essay that I don't do anything uh, really. And so, but, but in, that, in that process, really learning about like, well, how, how are there ways that I can start to image uh, God in this way? And being in DC, as you know, you probably do. It can be tough because like we're sort of like in a concrete town. Like there's yeah. just not a lot of space. No, no. And I, so um, when I was working the oil field and I was working an on off schedule, I'd have two weeks on two weeks off. When I was on, I was trying to figure out, find a new habit, <laughs> not a new habit. Um, <laughs> didn't need any more of those, a, a new hobby. And I went on to this website and gardening. I was like, gosh, I never thought about that. That'd be fun. So I, so I built my, uh, like a raised garden and it was incredibly satisfying. I bet. I really want to do it. Yeah. The problem was I wasn't there for two weeks at a time to tend to it. So I would come back and uh, one time someone ate some of my strawberries and ended up having to go to the emergency room. That's another story for another time. <laughs> but I blame the person who I got the strawberries from and the fact that she just gone back from Africa. Neither here nor there. What <laughs> uh, an aside. Yeah. Yeah. So formation and calling. Yeah. And so what we just finished up our lectures were this past week was really how do we engage with culture? Um, and uh, anybody who's sort of spent some time around uh, reform circles sort of knows the, the never ending debate, it seems, between missional theology uh, and, uh, and, and the implications for that for cultural engagement and then sort of the two kingdoms doctrine. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at, and so, it's been. So, at a 101 level, at a 101 level, what is missional theology? Yeah, so missional theology is, is a a way of reading scripture. It's uh, through a lens of God's mission to creation. And so one of the biggest parts of the, the class and, and really learning about it is trying to get your mind away from the, the sort of the, this 
only looking at scripture about how to deal with the problem of personal sin and instead sort of widening the scope of what, what God is doing uh, in scripture and actually seeing that it's a, it's a plan from Genesis to revelation of God uh, restoring all of his creation, not just the, the image bearers that he puts in it. And so it's really looking at well, what are we here to do? If that's really the kind of the question that you're, you're wrestling with constantly in a missional theology is what, who am I and what am I here to do? And so around that missional theology, you said there's kind of a conversation going on. And what are the different sides of that conversation right now? Yeah, so I guess you could really pare it down between the two camps of creation, reformation. It, there's sort of a, there's all different kinds of uh, terms for it. The pejorative is neo-Calvinism, I think is kind of the one that's used. Um, but creation reformationalist is another sort of look at it. Um, and then there's what's called two kingdoms, uh, which is really a... Um, uh, deep dive into like natural law and like uh, the spheres that God um, creates and who has authority over those spheres. And it, it's important to remember that like Kuiper is a big, who's a big, you know, creation reformationalist person in the canon, uh, talked about sphere sovereignty. It's a thing that, that a lot of the reform folks talk about. So it's really a, a kind of a niche conversation within our own little camp, but it has a lot of implications for, you know, what, what we see and envision ourselves doing in this period between the, the ascension and Christ's return between the already and the not yet. And so th this kind of leads into Sunday services and the way missional theology and engagement with the world outside of the doors occurs. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how, how have you been thinking about this? And this kind of leads to the big thing that you said we were talking about before of what you want to talk about. Yeah. So. Yeah. So um, I think People probably have heard, I know you probably have heard this, like when we think about the body of Christ as, as, as an institution, the church as an institution, we, we typically talk about it as a gathering and sending institution, right? We gather on Sundays and then we're sent out to do cultural work and engagement uh, and, and living as Christians Monday through Saturday, whether that's in our vocations or, or what have you. And I've been really thinking about this within the context of not really having the gathering part anymore, right? Like, yeah, we're, we're online for the most part. Some churches have started going back piecemeal. So my church started meeting in person this, this month. Obviously, it's a very scaled back service. Very few people can RSVP to come. We're not singing as much. You're wearing masks. You're spaced out. There's no, you know, shaking hands and there's no uh, communion. Um, so it's definitely a different sort of thing. So I, I think you can still, it's still safe to say that we're not really doing the full gathering part anymore. I've really been thinking about what a friend of ours, Alicia Aiken, said when she came on the show a few episodes back. Uh, and we were talking about the church during COVID-19. And that, at that time, everything was shut down. We were like in total shutdown mode. Um, and uh, one of the things that she said was that perhaps it's a time and a season for something. Uh, that it's, it's time for the church to sort of uh, spend time in this season and sort of uh, uh, think about that. Uh, and that's been something I've been wrestling with uh, since, since she came on the show and really thinking about it. And I think what, what's sort of coming out in these conversations that I'm having with uh, and engaging with Two Kingdoms theology is that Two Kingdoms theology has a really strong emphasis on the gathering part of, of church, about the rest that comes after work um, because of it, the way that they read Adam and, and story in creation. But um, there's a real emphasis that we gather on Sundays solely for the purpose for like the sake of fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to rest and worship God. 
and to have our souls nourished um, and to be content. I think that there's a, there's a reason why that that's so appealing right now, especially in COVID-19, because I do feel as if a lot of the conversations coming out of uh, churches, the evangelical circles during COVID-19 has been so, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to reach people, to do this program, to start this thing. I mean, even this podcast in a sense, right, is a product of what can we do during COVID-19 when we can't meet in person with folks. Like there's just so much of activity going on that the idea of going to church just for the sake of resting and, and being there with our brothers and sisters is just so appealing. And I wonder if that's something we haven't really thought about a lot. With the, these different models of Christian worship and these different models of Christian living where you have the Kyperian view and the two kingdoms view and their different formats, you can oftentimes get almost like a quasi Kyperian understanding or a quasi neo-Calvinistic view that is overly rah-rah, let's go change the culture for Christ, that ends up neglecting the importance of the Sunday morning gathering as a unique, fundamentally different day of the week. <clears throat> and so while there are really good motives in wanting to care for the culture, wanting to care for society, and wanting to, biblically speaking, to love our neighbors based on where we're placed in the world by our sovereign God, Sunday morning, instead of being a place where we are gathered together, we are called out, we are reminded of the reality that has been happening for God's people since the Sinai covenant ceremony in Exodus, Exodus 19. That almost gets pushed to the side and instead elevated, you know, Monday through Saturday, hey, let's go be real Christians then and just come in here and be reminded of what you're supposed to do for the rest of the week, rather than saying, well, actually, we are, this is a sacred space and a sacred time. Monday through Saturday also are very important, yes, um, but they are not a replacement right. for Sunday. Right. That, one of the things that I remember, you know, I, I, like the, I like the idea of gathering and sending because it communicates that, that cyclical fashion of sort of what, we, what we're doing. Uh, one of my favorite professors at Covenant always likes to draw the, the sort of the infinity sign, sort of like, you can't really have it one way and you can't really have one side bigger than the other. It's like, it's gotta be in balance. Um, and you're exactly right about sort of the, the calling up apart, the setting apart. Um, I mean, that's what holiness is, right? And we don't really talk a lot about holiness as much anymore, I feel like. I feel like that's sort of like a you know, that's something for older generations, blah, blah, blah. And so holiness is, is something different. I, I will say this, though. Um, even in this time of sort of wrestling with these doctrines and really kind of feeling weary and just, you know, am I doing enough? Just like constantly asking myself that question, am I doing enough? Which is not good for uh, folks who have identity issues in Christ. I mean, let's just say it. I returned to a book that I had to read uh, for another one of my classes about this issue as well. And went to look uh, at what uh, the author Michael Goheen said about what is the church's role in supporting people with vocations and when they go out to do missional work uh, in their vocations. And, you know, sometimes you get a really sort of triumphalistic approach to it. And there's sort of like, like when you say like, rah, rah, let's go do it. Like it's, you know, put, put your boots on, let's go. And 
Goheen hits on three things that the church like really does in terms of people's vocations. It's like we support people in their suffering. We pray for each other. And then we act as a community to, to encourage and support each other. It's like, okay, that's a place where you can rest, right? Like in that security and comfort of your local church of being able to go to them when you're like, Hey, I'm just exhausted. And I don't know how to deal with this. I'm having a real tough time being a politician and a Christian at the same time. And that the church's response is not, okay, well, here's, we're going to give you 10 books about how to be a politician and a Christian, or, Hey, we're going to send you, send you out with this thing. Really like, no, it's like, okay, you need to come here and lament and we want to support you, encourage you. We want to pray for you. Like that's, there's a lot of rest there. And I think that it's good to always return to that, um, especially in a time when it, right now we're sort of feeling like we got to be doing more. We got to be doing more, even as more and more things are sort of being taken away from us. So in one of my pastoral ethics class, the amount of time that my professor spent on the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments was disproportionate to the rest of the time that he spent teaching on the other Ten Commandments because so much of it went back to that. So much of the other commandments went back to that. And so much of what we do, we always have to keep in mind that we are called to rest because it's up to God anyways. And we are called to sit in his presence and take a day off and to recover. We need it. Absolutely. 100%. But bigger than that is the reality that God is the one who began the work and who will finish the work, who is the alpha and the omega of all of creation and of recreation. He invites us to participate in that, but our efforts are very small anyways. And he is far better at it than we are as he allows us to engage. Yeah. I really come down to two different things that I really want, that I'm really trying to focus on as I think about this issue and kind of dealing with the, the fatigue of COVID-19 and being in vocational ministry, like I'll just say it, uh, two things I'm really sort of focusing on. The, the first thing I really focus on is, is prayer to sort of ask God to continue to show me what, what he has for me in this period uh, and he has for the church uh, in this time. You know, it's sort of like the answer to Alicia Aiken's question is we, we just don't know, right? And so just being continuing to pray for that, um, I think has been really helpful. The, the second thing is I think about as I actually go out to engage with culture, I've really been thinking about Isaiah and sort of the idea of just being content and and happy, just being a tool in the hands of God, whatever that activity means, it, as as little or small, you know, as or big as the things that God does through me or through this ministry, I'm really just focusing on. I'm just happy to be here. I'm just content to be uh, used and seen. And I think that that's been that's given me a lot of comfort. I've been able to find a lot of rest in that. And so, because it's it, you know. <laughs> we don't have the end date for this thing yet, right? Like we're going to be in this period at least for another five months, you know, and things are going to only get crazier. I mean, I think we, we laughed about it the last episode. It's still true. Like we still have to go to the polls this year. Like the, the idea, the amount of things that are going to weigh on our schedules and our plates and our, you know, all that kind of stuff. It, it's, it's immense. And so um, I think uh, every once in a while, it's good to just sort of sit back and remind ourselves and take a page out of sort of the two kingdoms viewpoint and just remind ourselves of the requirement of rest and leisure and being able to just enjoy uh, that special sacred, as you said, time with um, our church and, and God. So that's kind of what, what's going on in my mind right now. Love it. Well, Robert, thanks for giving us those thoughts, sharing with me what you've been thinking and we'll be back for part two. 
Hey y'all, it's Robert from The Will and Rob Show. Thank you so much for tuning in each week to hear our conversations about faith and culture. This show could not happen without you or without Ministry to State. If you like what you hear, make sure to check out the rest of Ministry to State's content, like our weekly devotionals and regular Bible studies. Just visit www.ministrytostate.org and click Get Connected. Okay, back to the show. Hey there, welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. I am very excited because Will has been raving about a book that he has uh, just finished. One that definitely not a theological textbook with some of the stuff that I'm reading. Definitely something more, uh, a lot more lively uh, and fun. So Will, tell us what you've been reading. So I felt the need for something that was a little bit fantastical. I wanted something that was uh, lighter and enjoyable. A couple of years ago, I picked up my first Salman Rushdie novel which was two years eight months and 28 nights uh which is the same amount of time as a thousand and one nights as in arabian nights okay so it was kind of his replaying on shahrazad and him retelling it in a more modern way or and so uh and then i read earlier this year i read midnight's children which won the booker prize when it came out in 1981 and then won the best of bookers prize when it in 2006 on its uh 25th anniversary i mean just a a titan of a novelist and a storyteller. And then I just read his book, uh, Haroon and the Sea of Stories. I finished, I, I read it. It's, it's a kid's novel, really. I mean, it's, it's like a young adult book. And so it was so much fun. And one of the things that's really interesting about this, and one of the things that makes Rushdie such a compelling person, I think, outside of just his ability to write stories and to, to tell them, is his kind of geopolitical context. So the fourth novel that he wrote was called The Satanic Verses, which was published in 1988 and received a ridiculous amount of controversy. In fact, if you were to go to Amazon and read the description, the description on there is one of the most controversial novels ever written. And so the reference to the title is in reference to an event that happened in the Quran. So in 615, there's a persecution going on because some of Muhammad's teachings were found to be heretical. And so Muhammad has this dream in which these three deities are mentioned. However, that is a direct contradiction to the Muslim doctrine of Taweed, which is there's only one God. So there's not a plurality of gods. Well, because of this big controversy, those later removed and Surah, uh, that chapter is changed and revised and the, what are called the satanic verses are removed and the story that starts going around is that those verses were put on his tongue by Satan. So they have been called the satanic verses. Those are not inspired uh, by Allah to Muhammad. Instead, they are satanic verses that were given to Muhammad by Satan. Well, so he writes a novel called The Satanic Verses, causes a crazy amount of controversy. There are riots that go on in Islamabad, Pakistan on on February 14th, 1989, after the book is released, the Ayatollah in Iran puts a fatwa on him. And part of the reason that happens is on February 12th of that same year, 1989, there was a giant riot. Six protesters were killed in Islamabad, Pakistan, outside of the American Cultural Center. There were multiple assassination attempts on Rushdie's life. And so he is taken into hiding and protection by the British government. So they end up protecting him. So he was born in Bombay, India, but then he was living in 
in the in the UK. And so as he's taken and hiding, he ends up writing this story, Harun and the Sea of Stories, for his son, who he's not able to be around and spend time with. And what's wonderful about the story is it's about a father named Rashid, who is a storyteller, who is a famous storyteller in India, uh, and his son, Harun. And Rashid's popularity is so great that he has drawn the attention of politicians. And this one politician at this place called the Dole Lake wants for him to come and tell his stories to his people. So they get on a bus and they take this crazy bus ride to the Dole Lake and they are given uh, this, this house to sleep at on this island and Rashid can't sleep and Haroon can't sleep because their beds are just the opposite of what they need. So they switch beds. And in the middle of the night, this water genie shows up who is there to disconnect the storytelling powers from Rashid, but ends up waking up Haroon. And what's interesting is that Haroon has asked his dad, where do you get these stories? And his dad tells him from a genie. And Haroon's like, I don't, I, I, there's no way. That's not true. So anyways, this genie shows up and he's like, holy cow, there's like actually these genies <laughs> that my dad has been telling me about. And so they go on this journey to this land called Kanani, which is Indian for story. They go there and there's this enemy of stories that are, that's trying to attack the people and so it's, it's the story about the power of storytelling. What is Rusty trying to say about the importance of storytelling? Because I feel like in our Western culture, we don't put as much of an emphasis on sort of the importance of storytelling as one of the first things that I remember learning in seminary. It was like understanding uh, the Old Testament through the lens of a culture that's, that's very much about passing down stories and understanding your place within that story um, and narratives and, and things like that. This obviously is coming from a more Eastern perspective. So like, what is Rushdie trying to say about the importance of stories? Yeah, one of the questions throughout the novel is that kind of the, one of the antagonists of the story in, I guess what you'd call the real world rather than the fantasy world that they end up going into. But then again, it's not so clear in magical realism because they're both equally as real. One is just, we would not recognize as immediately here in our earth context is what good is a story if it isn't true? And that is answered at the end of the novel. I don't really want to give it away because I think it's so good, but he answers that question through Rashid telling a story to these, these people and their response to it and their identification with the story in certain ways. And, you know, I think it's interesting. There is, has been a lot of criticism, I think of like saying in an enlightenment context, you know, we don't tell stories enough. Stories are not uh, prioritized. Instead, it's these factual little bits of knowledge, but Something that's really interesting is that Immanuel Kant, right, the chief, if you're, depending on what side of the Enlightenment you fall on, you know, like the chief enemy of all mankind, Kant and his Enlightenment project, he wrote this essay called Conjectural Beginning of Human History. And what does he do for his Conjectural Beginning of Human History? He tells a story of how he thinks humanity started and came about. So even someone like who is the father, like the, the pinnacle of Enlightenment thinking, sees the value of the story. I think in some, some ways, we are overly critical and sometimes it seems like we act like we've just rediscovered story for the first time and that we lost it for so many years, but that's, that's just not true. It's always been there. I think in some ways it's just become heightened and not to like take away from, from how much I love stories, but sometimes we overdo narrative. I mean, the number of times I hear the word narrative in a single day can sometimes make me nauseous. It seems like that <laughs> word is just, there's just an abundance of it, but in, the, in this story, what's interesting is that the, the great enemy of the land of, of, uh, of Kanani, of 
it's a light against dark motif. So you have the light, which is where the gut people are, and then you have the land of the chop, and the, they're the bad ones uh, who are in darkness because they don't have any stories. But the great enemy who's in the dark land is Katam Shud, which is, which translates to basically completely finished, the end. Uh, which in one way is really beautiful as a father to son relation because as a kid, when you have to go to bed, what's the worst part? Well, the end is the worst part. Why? Because the lights go out and the beauty and the fun of the story has been taken away. At one point, Harun, who is the hero, goes and is talking to um, the chief antagonist in the land of Kanani. And he says, why do you hate stories so much? Stories are fun. His response is, the world is not made for fun. The world is made to be controlled. I love that for a number of reasons, and I think mostly uh, in a Christian context of understanding scripture as this great narrative that we live into. And there's something about a story that is both stable and developing in that we are invited into and and identify and see what God is doing. And he says that he's still at work and he's doing it. Uh, and we know how things end in a way, but they still continue on in Revelation. Like Revelation is not necessarily the end. It's a, it ends with come Lord Jesus. So the story is intended to be continuing on and for us dwelling with him in the new heaven, new earth and continuing to be things. We do not live in a world where Katam should is what happens to us. We live in a place where things will be opened up and made new. And then we will continue moving on with this story that, that God is telling. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how much this antagonism that we tend to have between order and freedom plays into how we view this story or how we view what you're talking about. Like there tends to be sort of this dualism that we put up where it's like, you can either have order or you can have freedom because we tend to think solely in sort of the, the freedom from mindset instead of the freedom too. And like the reality is that order actually provides stability, which actually offers opportunities for, for freedom. Oh yeah. And to bring it to an American political context, as different as Benjamin Franklin and Jonathan Edwards were, they would understand that, that vices are the great captor, that vices are great captivity, that they are not freedom. And that in order for people to be free, there must be order in their own lives. I mean, that's seen in the Federalist Papers, right? How they understand uh, human, the human mind, human context, and then the politic in which people are living. But yeah, certainly this idea of an ordered narrative, an ordered understanding does create and lead to greater freedom. Yeah, I mean, I think about how it plays out in the arts. So like, I remember taking a music history class in college that I had to take for an acquirement. It was actually and a great class to study this question because we looked at orchestra pieces of the modern variety, right? Which are sort of like random. There's not a lot of order and direction to them. It's just sort of like random playing. And you can just see the difference between that and sort of a uh, Beethoven or in Bach or anything like that. Aaron Copeland. Yeah, it's just, there's a lot of, there's a story that that these artists are telling throughout their music and it, it has a flow and it, it has a climax and then it, it brings a resolve. Like you just sort of fit that, that storytelling actually offers and offers the musicians a lot of freedom to do new things and to try new things. And so I think, I think we see this played out a lot in, in every aspect of our life. I mean, I can just sort of do it philosophically. Like 
there's just nothing more terrifying to me than sort of the isolated eye that doesn't have a story to connect itself to that sort of here in this amazing creation to just do whatever that's that's one of the most terrifying things to me what's alistair mcintyre's one of his big points that people love to quote so often in his book after virtue is basically the idea is that in order to know what i am to do ethically i have to ask myself of what story am i a part mm-hmm. and as we think about you know dr yoder talking about church history is that you can't divorce the church's theology and its vitality from its ethics mm-hmm. is that its ethics is going to be so essential for how it is living and how well it is living well, thank you, Will. I cannot wait to get my hands on this book. Once I'm done with uh, studying big theology textbooks, I plan to, to get around to it. Um, again, one more time, it's, it's called... Haroon and the Sea of Stories. Highly recommended. Gosh, there's a lot more about the book that I really loved and would love to say, but... but and we, uh, just had a very, we just had a very, like, 10,000-foot conversation about storytelling and narratives, blah, blah. But this is a, remind, this is a children's book. This is yeah. accessible to anybody. Yeah, this is a this is a kids book. This is um, which is probably why I loved it so much. It was very easy to understand. <laughs> There's something wonderful about those really great children's books, uh, like the Chronicles of Narnia or uh, things like that nature that just do such a great job of telling such great truth uh, at a at a level that that anyone can understand. So that's great. Thank you, Will, and we'll be back for our next segment. Fan of the Will and Rob Show? Make sure to check out Ministry to State's other podcast, Faithful Presence. Join host, Reverend Michael Langer, as he explores the paradox and importance of Christians living as the elect and as exiles in our world, as well as practical and theological discussions of faith in the workplace, the political arena, and the local culture. Just search for Faithful Presence wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to click subscribe. Now, back to the Will and Rob Show. All right, welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. We've been having some pretty uh, in-depth conversations about storytelling, narratives, uh, two kingdoms doctrine, and, and all kinds of ideas about cultural engagement. So we figured it'd be great to just take a break and talk about baseball because opening weekend was this past weekend. We finally got to sit down, watch some uh, baseball. We got to watch our hometown team, the Nats even though they dropped the series against the Yankees, it was still fun to watch, watch them play. And the second game in particular, it was, it was good to watch the Nats back in their world series form. Did you, did you catch many of the games? Yeah. I watched the first half. I mean, I guess the first game, which was only six innings. And I know that you were going to be very disappointed if the game were to get rained out and correct me if I'm wrong, but this year, the rule is uh, if the, if the, weather interrupts the game no matter how far into the game it's over you don't yeah yeah they're not they're not trying to do rescheduling or anything like that they're just trying to get games done okay yeah okay yeah i was i was actually downtown uh down by the ballpark uh in navy yard at a at a bar there with a lot of friends watching the game one of my buddies actually lives in the apartment building that overlooks the stadium so he was one of like 40 people that actually saw opening day um it was unfortunate for him because he was up on a rooftop when the massive storm came in uh, while yeah. we were, we were safely inside Atlas Brewworks. So, but it was still fun. You know, it was fun to watch the game. You know, it's fun to watch the world series defending Nats. It's kind of funny because we're sort of a, a repeat of last year's team. We've got really strong starting pitching. We can hit, but our bullpen 
seems to also be shaky. So we'll see what happens. It was fun to just watch what was going on around the rest of the league. Um, there was a lot of storylines because the MLB and the players decided to spend uh, opening weekend uh, doing a lot of demonstrations and programs to address Black Lives Matter. Did you did you catch any of those? Well, I know you had mentioned and I saw the article with your for the Francisco Giants who refused to kneel. I know that was I, that was probably the biggest story that was going on in baseball about the Black Lives Matter. And, yeah. and every base has MLB BLM yeah. also. Yeah, Sam Coonrad, I think, he decided not to kneel uh, during the demonstration. And it, it, it's interesting because the MLB decided to try to divorce it from the anthem. So there's no unified demonstration during the anthem. It's something that happens before. Um, of, of course, some players are remaining kneeling, but in this demonstration, they're, they're holding a, a long black um, ribbon of some sort or, or banner uh, while the players kneel. And Coonrad decided to hold the banner but not kneel. Uh, and he, he specifically cited, it was interesting, he specifically cited his, his Christian faith that he couldn't kneel before anything uh, but God, uh, which is, you know, something you've sort of heard tossed around by, by different groups and, and people in regards to this whole situation. Um, but what was really interesting was the Deadspin article that came out the day after that was very critical of his decision and also got a few of the facts wrong, uh, which I thought was a little uncharitable. But yeah, that was definitely a big storyline um, for the weekend. I, I heard him heard it as well that he had cited his Christian faith as for why he didn't kneel. And I think, look, if someone does not want to kneel, that is their prerogative. And if they are convicted that, that it is wrong for them to kneel, then that is fair and good. And they should not be coerced or shamed, which is a lot of what's happening here on this issue. Um, I would say it's interesting to cite one's Christian faith as in I only kneel before God only because I don't think that the kneeling is kneeling in homage or in allegiance to the BLM. It's, it's a symbolic act of um, uh, many ways. I mean, it's kind of taken on different meaning from Colin Kaepernick down to kneeling as symbolic of what happened to George Floyd. So I don't know if it's exactly deference reverence to this movement um, but I do certainly think that if someone is convicted that they ought not kneel, then it is not our place at all to try to force them. And there's would, probably would, very good reasons to not kneel as well. There are good reasons not to. And um, it's, it's interesting just how much things have changed even in the last year. Yeah. One of the things that the Deadspin article pointed out was that we'll look at all these other players that are, you know, very openly and outspoken Christians and, I guess with the, the rationale being that, hey, if these other Christians are doing it, then, then you have to, too. And if you're not, then you're, you're not a Christian, it, which, is, which is not a very nuanced. I mean, I guess I shouldn't expect as much from Deadspin, but not a very... Well, ham-handed, for yeah. sure, in yeah. that it has no understanding of the liberty and the things of God. Yeah, the, right. the tradition of Christian liberty. And I mean, that's been needs to get a theologian on, you know, on their staff. Made me think of, look, food sacrifice to idols. That is something that their conscience forbids them to do. Then their conscience forbids them to do that. Yeah. Uh, and Paul's pretty explicit on, on respecting 
that in Christians. And I, yeah. and I don't think, I think this is a very gray area. And I mean, I'm, I, I'm not a fan of kneeling during the national anthem. Certainly. I'm not, I'm definitely don't think I would not do that. Um, but again, I think that it's an, an area of Christian liberty. Yeah. It sort of leads to a bigger question, which we just don't have time to tackle right now, but would be interesting uh, as more sports leagues start doing stuff and, and uh, there, you know, there's no shortage of different demonstrations that different leagues are doing uh, in, in response to the uh, George Floyd uh, incidents and, and, and other uh, cases of uh, police brutality and uh, systemic racism. It, it would be interesting though, to have a conversation about everything seems to be some sort of demonstration wordless act and so when there's no words to sort of form what's going on, like no single speaker, uh, it does make it hard to figure out, well, what is this demonstration actually doing? What are we actually saying by this demonstration? Because right now the answer sort of seems to be, well, it can mean anything. But if it means anything, then what does it actually mean? You know, like what Coonrad said, I believe, was, was sort of something along the lines of, well, I wanted to stand in solidarity with my uh, my teammates and my friends and opponents who are African-American and deal with these issues. But I, I don't support sort of capital BLM because of their stated positions on things like the family and, and such. Well, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, this knee doesn't mean anything about that. Well, it's like, it's hard to say because no one's articulated what it means. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of interested. And it's such a, it's such a difference from like the civil rights movement in the sixties, which was so, we, we remember a lot of the public demonstrations, right? We remember the, the crossing the, the bridges and, and things like that. But we also remember, you know, the March on Washington and the I Have a Dream speech that really summarized, this is what this movement is all about. And it was a big reason why a lot of folks who didn't like the uh, civil disobedience were able to finally get on board. It was because, oh, they had finally had words, you know, the, the actions had had some words attached to them. Um, so I, I think it's an example of, of places where there could be a lot more done uh, in order to sort of reach a consensus on a lot of these things. So yeah, that's, it's funny. Like we kind of look to baseball to be something that we can sort of take a break from what's going on in the world around us. And it seems it just can't, it can't get away from it. Yeah. I remember reading a, a Wall Street Journal article. It was an op-ed years ago and it was talking about protests and during sports. And they mentioned I mean, maybe this would be back in the good old days or something like that. The Reagan era back in the good old days. <laughs> the uh, the presence of politicians being at a game and they would be booed by both sides. Why? Because, you know, this is, hey, this is baseball time. This is not time for your political grandstanding. Let's uh, let's just enjoy a beer and a, and, a, and a hot dog and watch the game. So, I mean, there's, and I know there's different people who stand in different areas on that, but I, I would be nice to have an area where there is some just break from things for baseball but another thought i mean just with with controversial issues in baseball should the dodgers have thrown the you know bean to the the astros players what are your thoughts there that was a crazy uh situation i was watching some highlights this morning i saw bregman got got beaned uh which was I think a lot of people were just sort of like, yep, that's, that's deserved. Okay. We're done. Kind of wipe your hands of it. It reminded me actually a lot of, uh, do you remember the, the fight? I think it was a couple seasons ago between Odor and Bautista 
uh, between the Rangers and the Blue Jays. Just sort of like a, look, this is happening, just deal with it. And, but in similar fashion, it kind of got blown out of proportion last night. The look on the Astros' faces is just, I regret everything we did. This was, this was not worth it. Like, they're just dealing with all that. So um, that, that will definitely be interesting to see more te- like what other teams' responses to be. Because everyone sort of was building up to what's going to happen between the Dodgers and the Astros since it's really the Dodgers that are lost the World Series because of it. Not as many teams have, the, have a similar claim on revenge, but it seems to be a, a, a theme of the season is that more teams are going to be uh, taking it out on the Astros. Baseball needs a great Satan. I mean, it needs <laughs> someone to hate. Uh, for so long growing up, it was the Yankees. And I think having a place to vent this feeling of what the, this terrible thing the Astros did. I, I think that there is a legitimate cause to throw the ball at a couple of their players. I definitely don't think you should aim at their head, right? I mean, the, right. the point is not to hurt them, but to say, you know, this is the way the game is played. This is what we do. And, yeah. uh, you know, so I don't really have that much of an issue with it. I do like the old school way of playing, but I, I kind of hope more teams get online. And I'm a Rangers fan. And I think, you know, the Astros need to be pushed around a little. When it comes to the the unwritten rules of baseball and and all that, I, I'm I kind of weirdly find myself oftentimes in with a foot in both camps because I think it just makes the games more entertaining. So I, on one hand, I'm just a strict traditionalist and I love the unwritten rules and I love the the sort of the gentleman aspect of the game, and at the same time, like. I also like it when my favorite players flip bats on huge home runs and when they make great plays and because it also leads to that, that push and pull, right. And, and causes that um, friction, which is always exciting to watch. And, you know, I'm, I'm about players showing passion and I want to, I want a game that is exciting and uh, gets me entertained and, and also gets me into the game. And so I'm all about it. What's not fun is being a fan and watching your team vote to not play. That's, I'll, I'll just say, it, that's not very fun. That doesn't make me feel welcome into the game. When it comes to the Players Association, the MLB is a nightmare. Yeah. It's a disaster. I, I love baseball, but it's full of so many prima donnas. And you mentioned the gentlemanliness of the game. You know, dueling was a part of gentlemanly behavior. <laughs> so maybe that's kind of what they're going for here. Yeah, it'll be, it's definitely going to be, exciting to watch the next couple of days to see what happens i could see it going either way i could see the mlb really cracking the whip and saying no we agreed to certain rules and we're going to play the game as we discussed and the country needs it like people need something to distract themselves from the idea of not going back to school or not going back to work and i could also at the same time see the, the players just so upset by how the whole cba went and and the discussions there that they keep voting to not play and and two weeks later we may not have baseball it's going to be a real touch and go and in the meantime we'll enjoy it i don't have the nats on tv so i actually listen to them on the radio like an old retired person and it's been the it's been the joy of my days of turning on the my little portable radio and listening to the nats broadcast it'd be really sad if that got taken away so fast Baseball over the radio is a special thing. It, my, I loved listening to it as a kid. I know one of my friends growing up, his dad 
made them listen to it on the radio. Just as one more tragedy, I was watching the Rangers last night and twice a Whataburger commercial came on. I saw you tweeting about it and it made me want twice. Oh my gosh. And I, I was, there's not one within even a hundred miles. I'm sure there's not one within a thousand miles. There's anyways, I, I was hoping that maybe they could get their act together and not torture or try to send something up here, you know, freeze dry. I'll even take that. Well, thank you so much, uh, Will. This was great. Thank you for listening to the Will and Rob show. Uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at RD Hassler and you can follow Will and his laments over not having Whataburger at Stockdale Will. Um, and we will see you guys again next week. Bye.